Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. This is Perry Clark back with you, licensed marriage and family therapist. I want to remind everyone that this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. It does not constitute a visit with a licensed mental health professional. Please seek one out in your area to work on your unique health issues. So today's podcast, I'm going to introduce you to another of my fellow brain spotters, someone who has handled trainings as well. But additionally, it begins to start talking about one of our, some of our other elements for those of us that are BIPOC, which is Black, Indigenous, people of color, is talking about some of the experiences that are also connected in their work and also to the Native American world. So, because I want to make sure that we're getting as much representation about our experiences with mental health and working with it as possible. So, this gentleman is also one of the people who did my training when we 2020 happened and we had to switch over to doing a lot more virtual trainings to help me understand how to bring brain spotting into the virtual environment. So, I want to introduce you all to Steve Sawyer. Licensed clinical social worker, and I apologize, I don't know what these abbreviations are, but CSAC. Steve is a dual licensed psychotherapist filled with passion and knowledge surrounding the intervention and change process. His experiences come from two decades of intervention with tough to reach client populations in therapy settings ranging from residential, community based, outpatients, and wilderness therapy. He is a trained trainer of several unique therapeutic models, including brain spotting and heart math. Steve co-founded the New Vision Wilderness Therapy Program with a trauma-informed and clinical focus with three locations spanning the country. He continues to work as a core therapeutic training development staff with the Institute of Heart Math, receiving their Humanitarian Heart Award in 2018, and he is a leading active international brain spotting trainer. Along with, along with his training of phase one and two, he developed the, the developmental training focus model of brain spotting. Steve's native focused work is, a, is as a well, well variety, mending broken hearts trainer and generation red road facilitator. Steve spends time amongst trauma-focused treatment masters like Gourmate and Bessel van der Poel. Steve's trainings are recognized nationwide for their cutting-edge therapeutic techniques, science, and inspiration. Steve, welcome to Untying Knots. Thanks. Welcome. Uh, I just really appreciate the welcome here, Perry, so glad to be here. Glad to have you. So as I ask everybody, how did you get here? Yeah, uh, well, it's been a journey. Uh, I, throughout, you know, I wasn't one of the individuals that when I was in high school was thinking about being a mental health professional. I can promise you that. Most of us um, <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, uh, I was one of the more challenging uh, youth of our, uh, of our day. Um, but uh, I was actually slated to be a, uh, I was uh, going to be a law enforcement uh, person. I was on a track and field scholarship in college and going to do uh, criminal justice and um, was in it for the adrenaline uh, part of things and gratefully was swayed by another clinical social worker to um, start mentoring youth 
and I uh, started mentoring youth and really, really uh, appreciated uh, my time with them. And I saw one of those young men get arrested one day and uh, uh, it just, it broke my heart. And it's, uh, it, it literally immediately led to a, a swerve away from the criminal justice uh, track I was in in school and went into social work and, um, and early on just really got involved uh, early in my um my college years in working in residential treatment programs for at-risk youth. I was working specifically with young men coming out of corrections at that time. And, um, you know, uh, just really uh, embraced like the time and the work and the challenge of working with them. And so that's, that led it to a whole trajectory of uh, becoming a mental health clinician and everything else. Very nice. Very nice. And actually I got to kind of wonder, uh, you brought up a very interesting part, especially given, as a black man and as a man who has connections to Native Americans, the notion about law enforcement and the thing that drove you at first was that adrenaline rush. Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, I think that um, I talk a lot on men's issues and young men issues and things like that, you know, and they're in, in, inside of um, all of us in those younger uh, years, um, you know, late teen years and, and early 20 years when we're in college, um, you know, there's there's a there's a warrior energy element there that's that that doesn't get expressed in most of today's culture and world. And so inside of that, either, you know, individuals are involved in conflict with other males through fighting and fight club kind of stuff or, you know, and and, and that's a power and control dynamic, the law enforcement variable. There's no doubt um, like there, there there's an element there. And, uh, and, and for me, when I said when I said that it was it was it was more about um you know, trying to help save people's lives and, you know, being in those, that's, you know, I, I never envisioned being a, a, a straight kind of street police officer. I was, you know, uh, more interested in kind of like, you know, SWAT team kind of work in high, high intensity situations that way, which has an adrenaline appeal for a lot of, um, I think, uh, young men, you know, same with military, right? Mm -hmm. So, I came from a military family. My dad was, uh, was a Marine. So, there was this kind of element that just captivated me as a young man in my developmental years around that. And, you know, uh, it since got directed in a very different direction, but uh, that mm -hmm. was a little bit of that anyways. Yeah. Well, but I think that's also a very important factor too in, and this is also a part of a conversation I had with Dr. Paula Langford when she was talking about the football field. We know that there's only a limited number of sports teams and major teams that are getting paid. And yet there are even more, hundreds of places for people to start out in the football field and whittle down into those limited number of teams. But just as equally, whether in the military, whether in the police, yeah. SWAT is a very limited focus, limited quantity of people yeah. has everybody vying for it. So yeah. one of those subtle things is there even a degree of um, regret or feeling of loss, the fact that, oh, yeah, I wanted the cops to be a SWAT member, and yet I'm here being a beat cop. Yeah, yeah. Well, and then how does that manifest in the power and control dynamics of... Exactly. We see on the streets that harm um, BIPOC people and communities on a regular basis, right? Exactly. So. It, how is it a mischanneled use of that energy? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No doubt. Well, and that's, you know, in my work in wilderness therapy, uh, that's how I came to be a wilderness therapist was working with at-risk males mm -hmm. that, uh, and, and our groups serve male and female uh, and um, 
you know, uh, gender fluid students also. But mm-hmm. my beginning in it was taking young men into a more adventurous experience mm-hmm. that had movement, had uh, some challenge within it, had group culture mm-hmm. that hone and work on. And we know with adolescent males and adolescents in general that one of their highest level influences is peers. And mm-hmm. so when you have a peer dynamic that you can work on constantly day in and day out, that's what's one of the beauties of wilderness therapy is, is that we can um, work on the milieu and structure a lot and, um, mm-hmm. and, and develop uh, a milieu that, that has healthy mm-hmm. challenge in it and connection and comes from that place. So so for those listeners who do not know what milieu means, could you define that? Yeah, you bet. So from my perspective, milieu is the therapeutic environment of, that's based upon the group of individuals and how they're connected to each other in a group setting. And so milieu in a therapeutic placement, so wilderness therapy, uh, our students are placed with us and they're in our care 24 hours a day for up to 90 days of a time that group that they're living with, inclu- that, which includes staff um, that are on a rotational step, that milieu is how that group, um, the culture of that group. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and we have all kinds of environmental factors that we can work with, whether it's team building exercises and experiential. Wilderness therapy is very much experiential. So when we talk about milieu, it's much less about like kind of sitting on the couch and watching TV together in a residential treatment versus maybe uh, the, some of the things we might do as a group going canoeing together or rafting or, or going fishing together as a group. So mm-hmm. all of that builds a culture of what we would call the milieu and wilderness therapy that all influences it. Very much so. And it sort of comes back to something I, I know I've been saying recently is that the concept, especially in African culture, is that it takes a village to raise a child. Well, what is the nature that village is also trying to bring out in that child? Yes. Yeah. Well, I, my, 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 um, the spin I use in a lot of my presentations mm-hmm. uh, that goes off of the, 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 that village raises a child is a child here feel not the warmth of the village, burn the village down. Right. And so how did the village encourage that more destructive nature? Yeah. Yeah. And that is right. That's our culture um, mm-hmm. in the United States or uh, uh, whatnot that that has created a lot of that in our, our young people, you know, and mm-hmm. their animosity and hurt. Mm-hmm. So, that yeah. sadly cannot be expressed in a way that doesn't also result in destruction or trying to be the next SWAT or team, SEAL Team 6. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. No doubt. So could you tell us a bit more about what HeartMath is? Yeah, sure. You bet. Um, So I'm a faculty member of that institute. I'm a development faculty. So um, I work with them on a number of the bigger kind of training projects that they had. Um, HeartMath is a stress research institute that is really focused on emotional physiology in terms of how emotions affect the physiology of our body. And then with that, they really scientifically investigated self-regulation tools, mm-hmm. tools to regulate my my mood, my stress, uh, and what's happening within me. Mm-hmm. So, so HeartMath is a training institute uh, as well as a research institute. And mm-hmm. uh, when when I first met them, which was now 20 years ago, they were very focused on 
management and stress management on like high level playing field of CEOs in, in mm-hmm. 500 companies, um, our Olympic teams, astronauts, they were working with NASA. Mm-hmm. So high performance, stressful situations. How do we regulate our stress to perform well in that? Mm-hmm. At that time, they were not really involved or focused on mental health. Uh, and they had heard about some of the ways I was using their technology. I was using it with uh, some youth on uh, the south side of Milwaukee in our mental health clinic that were in our anger management program. I was introduced mm-hmm. to a, a friend and I started using all of that with them. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so uh, that led to a whole mental health. They were actually wanting to shift to more mental health focused um kind of research and impl- implementation of what they had found in stress research. Mm-hmm. They knew it applied to mental health. They just didn't have somebody who had really worked in it a lot. And so mm-hmm. they actually flew me to California and I showed them all these, um, these stress measurements on individuals that were having post-traumatic stress flashbacks, developmental trauma, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and different kinds of mental health manifestations. And I had at that time, by the time they flew me out there, I had hundreds of client readings Mm-hmm. mental health on what was is called heart rate variation measurement mm-hmm. um and so yeah i got involved with them and heart math is a is a they have a very simplified technology it's simplified biofeedback it's really reasonable and and i would almost call it cheap uh and they have all kinds of self-regulation or techniques for managing stress or decision making when under stress or when I'm in a stressed relationship, how to influence that techniques that are built upon um, regulating the brain to a better uh, space to now be more effective in whatever we're doing at that time. Mm-hmm. Or mental health symptoms too. So, right. Because the aspect of especially those in post-traumatic, they're being flashed back to or hitting triggers that bring them back into that panic state of that moment. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and all the different forms of reactivity that go with that. Right. So mm-hmm. some people shut down, some people are, you know, belligerent, there's all kinds of different manifestations of stress, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and I would call acute stress response. And so their techniques work incredibly effectively with it. I mean, I, I, I had many examples in my early years, 20 years ago, uh, doing this work, uh, which was very body focused, you know, mm-hmm. Of brain's body, very body focused, very um, research focused, also. So they really understood stress in the brain, and they were trying to find specific ways to um, enact kind of stability into the nervous system that way. Mm-hmm. Which I think that's a lovely segue into talking about brain spotting as well. So between what you're learning and what you've learned in how heart map, what you've learned in experience of working with the youth, how did brain spotting become mixed into this? And where is, how have you developed the two in concert with each other? Yeah, sure. Um, I think that's a, a great question. Um, from very early on, um, I was always very body focused in my, in, in my approach all the way along. I was an athlete. I did yoga at that time. I did a lot of, and I always understood this correlation that I personally experienced, which was like, when my mood changes, I can feel it in my body. Right. We did, you know, and that, Early on, when I was working with a lot of those kinds of more acute mental health, the idea that like we can't do anger management until we can feel anger coming on in our body, mm-hmm. right? And, and 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 we have to feel like when we talk about feelings in psychotherapy, we talk about them. You know, how do you feel? Uh, 
it, 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 how do we answer that question? We go to our body. So inside of that, uh, early on in my clinical development, I learned some models that were very physically focused, um, uh, even preceding somatic experiencing mm-hmm. you know, Levine's development and work, um, some work of, uh, David Grove was his name out of, um, out of, he's from Australia and had a kind of a verbal technique of regressing, almost trancing people and working with the body. Mm-hmm. I was trained in that, um, and had incredible results and did a lot of early trauma work with that and was going along with that at the same time around the time from EMDR was coming up as very popular, uh, a lot of people were talking about it. At this point, now I'm developed to the point, I was actually running a large clinic. I I, I ran one of the largest clinics at that time in Wisconsin. Mm-hmm. And I had a team of practitioners. And in our team, we had, uh, you know, expressive arts therapists. We had art therapists. We had sand tray therapists. Uh, we had EMDR clinicians. Um, there was clinicians I trained in some of the somatic models I was using and uh, that I had learned. And uh, the switch to brain spotting and my incredible devotion to that was a personal in nature. Uh, I had a um, very traumatic experience. Uh, my mother passed away um, on, on her wedding day uh, in uh, a helicopter crash. Um, I was a part of her team, her uh, uh, attempt to save her life team. And, uh, and when I went through that experience, there was a lot that was trapped in my body it was on her CPR team. And when I came back to my office after a month of my own wilderness therapy in Alaska, I followed my mom's trail on her dog sled through all of the Alaska cabins and the BLM land up there. Uh, uh, the uh, public land, they have cabins that you can rent and the dog mushers will stay at them in the wintertime and then mush from one to the other. I went and did my own time in the mountains. After I came back to my clinic, I went to my clinical su- my clinic supervisor, who I really trusted as a clinician, and said, well, what would you do? And uh, he knew I knew I would. Mm-hmm. come back and I want to go do my own work on this event. And he says, well, you know what I'm going to tell you. And he was a big EMDR practitioner. <clears throat> and I said, okay, well, who? Because here we were at this point, I was actually pioneering trauma-informed care in the state of Wisconsin. Uh, and you knew almost everybody around. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he told me who. So I went to that individual and a few sessions into it, because of my body awareness, my desire to heal, um, and my just somewhat aggressive or intense nature, I wanted to go at it. I wanted to do the work directly on this accident. I could feel it. I felt a lot of it in my shoulder and my body related to being on the CPR team. When I went in there, uh, we did back then EMDR was all about eye movements back and forth and back and forth. And every time I came to the left side of my visual field, as we were going back and forth, I could feel all this emotion rise up and then I'd feel my shoulders start to ache and Mm. we would go back and forth. But as I went back to the right, I'd be like, well, no, it's going away. It's going away. And then he'd come back to the left and I'd be like, no, there it is. There it is. And I could feel it every time I went back and forth, left to right. Like I could feel one side well way up and one side go away. And because of my kind of inner intuitive nature is like, I wanted to go at it all the way. Mm -hmm. And I stopped him after uh, about halfway through that session and just said, hey, this is what I'm experiencing. He's like, hey, Steve, you know, I don't know what to tell you. Like, let's just keep going. And I said, okay. So we keep going. But Mm -hmm. intuitively, internally, I knew I was like, no, this this ain't doing what I want it to do. And uh, and 
inside of that, I stopped him again after a period of these eye movements. And, and I said, listen, like I can feel it. Not only is it on this left side, it's really welling up, but it feels like it's even above eye level. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, you know, can we do something with that? And, and this was a key moment for me. Uh, is he said to me, Steve, we don't have a protocol for that. And that's all I needed to hear, which is like, you're telling me you don't have a solution for what my intuitive nature was saying is up here and to the left. Mm-hmm. I did uh, through client client um, compliance. I tried again, right? And we mm-hmm. did I think two more sessions. And I finally, I finally walked away and just didn't go back. I, I couldn't, mm-hmm. I couldn't feel the solution coming. Mm-hmm. I, as I got towards the solution, he moved me away from it. And, and it, by my, by the eye movements that were happening. And so I, I shared this experience with one of my really close dear friends. He's now a brain spotting trainer too, Jeff Ryan, he, uh, you know, and, and he was an EMDR level two, highly trained. And I sh- explained this to him and, and he's like, he's like, interesting, Steve, you know, he knew my story on that. So mm-hmm. I never, uh, you know, I didn't tell any of my clinicians on my team. I had started wilderness therapy at that point. Uh, our program, I didn't tell any of my clinicians that couldn't do EMDR. Or I didn't tell anybody not to go get EMDR. I just didn't believe mm-hmm. in it right. uh, fully. And so uh, one day he came to me and said, Steve, uh, somebody figured it out. And I said, you know, he said it in this like interesting way. What caught my attention, I was like, figured out what? He's like, mm-hmm. they figured out trauma work. They're doing it on the precise held eye position related to what they're working on the highest felt sense of the, of the suffering mm-hmm. struggle, whatever. And I said, where? And he said, I think like in Boulder, Colorado, I said, what is it called? He said, brain spot, brain spotting. Really? What is that? And, and he said, Boulder, Colorado is like, and literally two weeks later I was in a training because mm-hmm. I knew, I knew when they, he explained to me how they were doing it. Boom. I, I watched a YouTube video to whatever. And then boom, I was in a training. Mm-hmm. In that training, I got more relief than I had in all that other effort. Mm-hmm. And I'm the kind of person that, like, if something works that precisely, and it came from, there was an intuitive nature it, to it, I was like, I'm going to figure out what the heck this is about. So since that time, I've I've done, and he doesn't, this isn't breaking confidentiality, like he shares about it openly, mm-hmm. especially we're together in a, in a conference together, but I've done brain spotting on Gabber Mate, right? I've had ongoing debates and discussions with Bessel van der Kolk around brain spotting. He now supports brain spotting. Um, and I wanted, and, and I think a really important person in that journey was Stephen Porges where, well, a combination of Stephen Porges and Demir Damont, both these men uh, are very scientifically minded and educated and sharp and were able to explain to me the why behind brain spotting's held eye position. And so from then on, like, that I was really focused on brain spotting um, as a primary clinical modality. I mean, we still teach our clients heart mass self-regulation, but I, I describe brain spotting as the tweezers in trauma mm-hmm. work. We can have a splinter that's infected for a really long time. We can put a numbing agent on it so it doesn't hurt as much, but how do we get the splinter out? And that's what brain spotting is to me. Very lovely. Very lovely. And I think it's one of those, again, goes what you've also brought up it too, that aspect is the classic problem of, that often gets put towards BIPOC people is that we're not treatment compliant. <laughs> we're completely resistant. As opposed to, no, the treatment was the wrong one for us. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And anybody, uh, you know, can't at least make a reasonable uh, description of me about what they're doing and why they're doing it. Um, and, 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 and speaking of the native community, like somebody who uh, starts talking kind of pseudoscience or spiritual, uh, you know, uh, there's a large clarity in our community and respect for elders that have teachings or stories or reasoning behind what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So if you can't give me any of that, and I just don't have a way to do that, Steve, like I'm, I'm out, you know, um, you start, you start to explain to me something, uh, you know, from a spiritual perspective or whatever, you know, uh, if it doesn't align, like I'm out. So, uh, so there's a lot of that, that uh, you're right. It, it, it's a variable that culturally um, healthy, uh, skepticism, um, and even developmental trauma protectivism <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, is is an element, especially when somebody in front of us is supposedly an expert. There's a power and control dynamic there, mm-hmm. and now you're in charge of my care. Help me understand why we're doing this, and I'll be on board as long as you got a reasonable and clear clear description to it. But if you don't. I'm not, like you said, I'm not going to be treatment compliant just because you, you, you know, you're supposedly good at this. Or that the manual says to do it this way, or the protocol says to do it this way. Yes. And that, that for me is one of the most powerful elements of what brain spotting David Grant has done a wonderful job. And he says this, and I've been blessed to spend a lot of time with David, unlike a lot of practitioners of these days, um, you know, that he, strategically everything that felt like it might get in the way, he pulled it out of the way. If anything was pushing a client to do something, he tried to eliminate it, tried to eliminate all the power and control dynamics in it, you know? And so now of course we're a professional sitting in front of them and we can only eliminate so much of that. Mm -hmm. Right. But uh, anyways, so that, that you're absolutely right though, that treatment compliance and kind of obstinance or or, uh, all those things, uh, you know, like that, that's, you know, a healthy, uh, thing for the BIPOC community, community to maintain, you know, uh, to, to ask questions and, and uh, push back and be able to get some reasonable answers. So before we go on the break, I think that's a, 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 I want your opinion and thoughts on this then is, is that also part of the reason that it may be so difficult to get more of us into the field? Um. Yes. Yeah, I would, I would, I would think so. Right. Uh, it's a role that you're stepping into. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, yeah, it's a role that you're stepping into and, um, I, I think that's interesting when I think about it from a, a more indigenous perspective and to be really clear, like before I go any further, even on that topic, like I grew up, uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, I, I, well, I grew up as a, a white privileged male, you know, and so I always acknowledge that when I'm talking about any of these topics, I grew up mm-hmm. that way, um, uh, later found out of my indigenous roots, but then also have absorbed myself in indigenous culture, community and, and helping, mm-hmm. um, hence some of those things that were mentioned in my bio. But when I think about it, like being a helper um, from an indigenous perspective, like those are uh, that's a pretty uh, loaded expectation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and a, 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 there's a level of humility that comes in native community. Like, I don't want to, I don't want to step into that kind of position of power. I would never want to take the reins on somebody else's healing experience or that, because that's, that's designated to specific helper people or people of 
you know, medicine family, et cetera, right? So, uh, so that dynamic of stepping into that and potentially, uh, you know, I, I could see where there would be an aversion to that, um, you know, that's built into even culturally at some level. Mm-hmm. Beyond just the issues of money and being access to the training and so forth. Oh, but yeah, all that on top of it, right? Just that emotional weight. And as, as we start out by saying that, yeah, some some of us purposely come into this because of the experiences we've had with others who have helped. Some have come with that aspect that they want to heal themselves. And I know in my case, it was basically the universe was talking. I was listening. So I'm here doing all this as opposed to I was purposely looking for my healing or calls for it. It was like there's a weight there that goes on an entirely other level, existential, yeah. if you will that doesn't always get recognized in this work, doesn't get recognized in the science, doesn't get recognized in when we are showing that this is a path for people to take. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, I think that's a great place for us to take a break. All right. So, so folks, stay tuned for our second half here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage family therapist, here with Steve Sawyer, licensed CSW, and we'll be back shortly, so hang in there. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. Get the news on our shows and other happenings by following us on Twitter. Find us at VoiceAmericaTRN or Twitter.com forward slash VoiceAmericaTRN. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Hello, all. Welcome back to the second half here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist, here with Steve Sawyer, licensed clinical social worker. So I hope you've enjoyed our first half as we sort of explored some other areas there, but we're going to continue talking a bit more about the brain spotting and especially the developmental trauma model that you use and developed uh, for brain spotting. So what can you share for our listeners about that so that they can come see you for training and those that you have trained? Yeah, you bet. Um, I think that uh, one of the 
challenges to a lot of the therapeutic world is that so many of us clinicians are working at a deeper level on trauma and you know uh, work on generational issues things like that is this this variable of the the time frame in our lives that we can't remember well and we mm-hmm. can't articulate well mm-hmm. and and wonderfully so brain spotting tends to just explore that by in and of itself um you know pretty effectively uh but it's kind of left to just see kind of what happens versus a, a more structural kind of approach of understanding first of all what are the manifestations of developmental trauma when somebody has like actual developmental trauma uh in their history how does it manifest and so i teach a lot about that um and what the research has shown us um mm-hmm. and you know that the primary outcome of, of developmental trauma we know early on is falls in different categories of dysregulation. And, uh, and th- these are oftentimes what brings people in. Mm-hmm. They're having a marriage problem because there's some kind of dysregulation in the relationship, but it stems all the way back to the earliest developmental process. So we come in and we work on this dysregulation inside of this relationship right here now. Mm-hmm but the entire roots of that plant are still left undercover in the soil. Right. And, and so how do we, how do we, when we work with people that want to work on developmental trauma, get the most precise forms of access to that. And then, and also inside of that, the, some of the adaptations, even to what we do inside of brain spotting that we, that rules or things that are put in place uh, around setups even, or whatever that might um, steer us, uh, either to or away from access to very uh, non like nonverbal time frame information. Mm-hmm. How do we work strategically in there? Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so there's a there's a lot to that. I mean, it's uh, I've been first I did it in one day. People were like, "That's way too much in one day." Then I did it two days, and they're like, "Steve, would you please do more on this, 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 and this?" And then now we're at three days of training, and who knows? Mm-hmm. Uh, the last, uh, the most recent. Uh, proposed was that the group that kind of follows and, and, and we do work group with this stuff is saying that I, I should be doing four days, two days, have a week of brain rest and then have another two days. So we'll see where we go with that. So uh, any combination it's uh, is, is good for the training. It's just, as I know from my trainings, it's like, okay, there's a lot, there's some stuff you've been front loaded. There's stuff that is like, could we slow down on that? There's everyone who's rushing on this. It's like, okay, I'm getting in what I can. <laughs> Yep. Yep. No doubt. No doubt. Yeah. And so with the developmental training uh, and trauma recognition there, I guess someone would ask like, how does this relate to attachment and such? And I would often say that something like that is, okay, well, you're using brain spotting in this developmental training to help process that attachment as opposed to it's supposed to do something specific or which is another of that power control issues we see with methodologies that are in our field. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, it's interesting. There's themes of pockets that come up in just natural brain spotting work that um, people might just kind of breeze past. For example, a client that says, uh, you know, I'm just sensing something here, but I don't know what it is. And because we don't have an answer or a setup for, something's there, we kind of race past it when mm-hmm. they're actually touching into something on their physiology level. That's really important. And like 
so being able to stop and slow down and like focus in on those kinds of things when they come up around relational conflict in a marriage mm-hmm. and be a gateway to incredibly powerful information and resolution. But a lot of times we're, we kind of rush past that. Well, we'll come back to that and see if something comes up later or whatever, versus like, mm-hmm. let's stop right now and really just notice that in your body. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of the developmental trauma work has to be from this perspective of the body starting to tell the story before we even have a grasp of what we're doing right now, cognitively or mentally. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, you know, everybody talks about, you know, the book, Body Keeps the Score, that changed psychotherapy for the century, uh, got that designation. Uh, but we just don't listen. Like, we'll move right past the little score. It's just we don't have a clear definition of it. We don't have a clear approach to how to go after it. So mm-hmm. we just kind of leave it, go back undercover. Right. Even though the brain and the body at that moment was saying, hey, hey, here you go. You can work on some really early stuff here. You know, to use a more co- a method, method metaphor that probably people more recognize is. It's the gift wrapped box, but it's the small one versus the big one. Yes. And you're focusing on the big one and not even noticing that the small one actually has got that may have the key to that car or may have that thousand dollar diamond ring in it and stuff you want the big present which is basically just got the teddy bear well well and and and, oh i want to have a happy marriage and and we're gonna have a happy marriage now because we talked about this Mm -hmm. the key to really unlocking connection and intimacy in that relationship is in that little box that's in a little tiny memory that's from you know 45 years ago right Mm -hmm. and 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 that and and that being missed over and over again constantly mm-hmm. in, in, in work mm-hmm. you know, so uh that understanding that the early developmental roots and years of our neurobiology development mm-hmm. has the most important keys to everything that we're struggling with in whatever age we're at mm-hmm. yeah well yeah because again day in day out you are with your caregiver at the beginning of the lo- beginning of life yeah absolutely how they were functioning this goes back to the village metaphor is uh, what's going to be leading when you're having your argument with your spouse. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so it's being able to slow and take an approach that understands that actually, yes, this big present that's in my office right now, let's talk about your guys's conflict with each other is actually becomes almost secondary to that little box that has the key in it. That's back there. When I used to argue with my mother, when I was five years old, Mm-hmm. And, 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 and having that level of, pers- uh, of awareness and, and then having approach to go along with that. And equally the perspective shift, because yeah. again, how much is that section still trying to win that argument with mom? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And to it, winning is everything as opposed to what's going on with the relationship with mom. Yes, <laughs> correct, correct. Yeah. So that's, that's, that's where a lot of that comes from. And I think in the BIPOC community, um, you know, uh, we've, there, I actually do some presentations and conferences on this, which is like, we're talking more and more about generational trauma or historical trauma in mm-hmm. the BIPOC community. And the gateway to the gene expression, which is epigenetics, which is epigenetics, the gateway to that gene even being awakened is current developmental trauma. Mm -hmm. If we want to break the chains of historical trauma or generational trauma, 
The solution and the key is by cutting the chain of developmental trauma in the current time. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not about changing what happened. It's about changing how it lives within us. Yep. And so we have to work there. And so uh, as I, you know, talk with the BIPOC community a lot more uh, these last years is the solution in this, right? Because there's a, there's a limited amount of solution. A lot of times when we look at historical generational, because access is limited at some point, we know that brain spotting can get access to a lot of that. We both probably experienced that in our work, Hmm. but by focusing in on the developmental trauma process, first of all, sometimes we get access to that stuff easier. But second of all, uh, you know, we can start to break the chain in our families moving forward. Hmm. You know? And uh, and I remember having a conversation with Gabriel Monte. Me and him were at a hotel uh, t- together after one of our gigs together, and we we're going to meet. And and uh, you know, we were doing some work with him around parental guilt of traveling too much. And I said, man, Gabriel, this whole conversation is triggering me. I'm feeling it because I've been on the road for two weeks here and thinking about my son's back at home. And and he looked at me and said, Steve, do you repair better than your dad did? And I had, I went in my head and I was like, my dad didn't even have a concept of what repair was. <laughs> so do I repair better? Like night and day, completely different. Repair almost everything like surgically, you know, repair mm-hmm. stuff, right? And inside of that, the awareness and then he said, you know, like that's how the chain is broken. Mm-hmm. Right? And so uh, in the BIPOC community, treating developmental trauma and really doing it well can change and start to break the chains of this historical and generational trauma of epigenetics because epigenetics has to have a modern and a current expression to make that gene dominant. Mm-hmm. So to, for that gene to become dominant and awo- awoken, it requires developmental trauma that breathes of the same nature for that gene to come online and become our survival tool now in the current time. Mm-hmm. Well, it's trapped in our epigenetics. We have lots of genetic codes inside of us. It doesn't come to expression until it has to. Right. And then once it does and it's alive, the more experiences we have with it, then the more dominating it becomes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, somewhere in the family line, most everybody was green-eyed, but at some point, they all became hazel. Yep. So inside of that, what creates these adaptations? It's the modern time work of developmental trauma that we can work to break that chain and move forward in the next generation without them carrying on the need to express my protectedness, etc. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So... I think that's a, an interesting segue into the classic question I ask here is what's our myths and realities around mental health and now even trauma? What do you, given that lead up we just had, what do you think there? Yeah, I, I love it. Uh, I, I, I was blessed that Gabber um, gave me uh, his newest book that was just released uh, this week, uh, The, the uh, Myth of Normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, in advance and had me reading some of the chapters and thoughts on it. And uh, this idea of normal and then pathology, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and even trauma. So in there, what is, tra- in his first chapter, he, he starts to write about what is trauma and then what is not trauma. In this world, current time, one of the biggest misnomers, especially going around COVID, is we're all being traumatized. We're all being traumatized. Mm-hmm. Right? And 
by neurology and by definition in our criteria as mental health professionals, you can't label something as trauma until the threat is no longer present. And then we have manifestations still hindering our functioning after that. And so this word trauma, I, I love it. Listen, I was a huge proponent 20 years ago around trauma informed care and now pushing into trauma responsive care mm-hmm. is that this word gets thrown around so much that we've started to not differentiate acute stress response, what's just regular stress response. And then what is trauma response and pulling mm-hmm. that apart very carefully, because when we start telling people they're traumatized by something, there's a level of pathology that goes with that, that is misleading. Also, if you're in an acute stress response or just stressed, right? Mm-hmm. What does regular stress look like? This isn't trauma. This is just the stress of being in a situation. So for me, uh, that in our mental health field and the hypersensitivity and, uh, and the over emphasis of this word trauma, uh, you know, has a lot of implications too. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so for me, that's kind of a big thing, I guess. And, and, and I've been talking about that a lot and, and pulling that apart for people more and more around understanding acute stress response and survival mechanism, trauma, stress response, pulling that apart. And then, Going further than just trauma, let's take trauma and break that down into post-traumatic stress, complex trauma, developmental trauma, all three of them having very different manifestations. We just use this word, it's this blanket word trauma, and then we don't even have a common language what each one of those variables differences are. So those are, those are some of my bigger misnomers or kind of concerns around the mental health uh, field and labeling of things. Which in some ways is probably also being exacerbated by our uh, Instagram and TikTok. Uh, oh, yeah. Generations yeah. that are not making those distinctions because it's taking longer than what they've got on their recording span. Uh, or the aspect of it's not as catching. Doesn't yeah, right. Well. A- a- absolutely. Absolutely. You know, uh, and... and People are just blatantly saying, oh, I'm traumatized over this. And I'm traumatized over that. And that's, that's not accurate. It's not even, a, you know, uh, uh, unless it was an extreme experience, right? It's not going to fall under the criteria of trauma. And so uh, it, what it does is it, it um, downplays uh, other people's experiences. It's mm-hmm. like, wait, you're calling that trauma? No, this is what trauma looks like. And, and, and what I do, another one to go with that is big T's and little T's. There's mm-hmm. therapists that listen to this. Um, I love it. Gabbard just nailed it in his book. Uh, there's a section in there on big T's and little T's, and he talks directly about it and how measurement of trauma in general mm-hmm. uh, is just totally ineffective. Ineffective. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes, exactly. And, and it's a subjective inner developmental measure. And then when people start, you know, well, I have little T's, mm-hmm. but they're dominating and affecting their life. They li- have little traumas, but it's dominating their life. Somehow that's different than well, if I had big T's, mm-hmm. you know, or boy, I'm really messed up because I only have little T's and I'm such a mess. Like, so that the self pathologizing that goes with these judgments and these labels. I mean, think about that. The word little t, little mm-hmm. trauma. Mm-hmm. Minim- minimize. It's not something we should be paying as much attention to. So it almost brings up there is an aspect of that once more we're seeing the domination and control narrative, power and control narrative 
going into what is regulating the big T, what is regulating the small T, what is the definition between each of these different acute to complex to yep. developmental. And, and in brain spotting, do we really, does it really matter? No. Like we sit down and we're with you and we work and we focus on a neurophysiology that's in your body related to this pain that you have. Call it a big T, little T, or just a stress response. We focus on that and we sit with you within that and, and we work on releasing that from your neurophysiology. Mm-hmm. How you measure it has very little bearing on what the outcome is, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of release. So, you know, a person who has a massive, enormous big T can get the same amount of release oftentimes in the same amount of time as somebody who has just has a stress. Mm-hmm. And so that's how powerful that modality is in working that way. So. Uh, so I think that is a beautiful place for us to end our talk for today. Where can people find you to, if they want to learn more about any of these things we've discussed, as well as where can we direct people to, if they're interested in learning more about brain spotting and, uh, and these other theories and even yeah. Cor- Corbe's, yeah. Corbe's uh, book. My primary place of expression of what I'm up to is through uh, my trauma transformations, Instagram page. So it's just trauma transformations all spelled out. You have to have that plural on there to find me. Um, that's where I post a lot of stuff that I'm up to. I put different things. I posted some of the quotes from Gabber's book on there just recently, for example, um, just, you know, trauma thinking. Um, I, a lot of my time is committed to our wilderness therapy program. So newvisionwilderness.com, deschuteswilderness.com in Oregon, and then First Light Wilderness uh, in Georgia. Um, all three of those programs I visit, I work with them and I clinically consult with all and all of them. And then with BrainSpotting, BrainSpotting.com is obviously our largest kind of hub of information and training. Anything that I'm doing, phase one, phase two, developmental trauma model, native focused brain spotting trainings, all of those I usually post on our trauma transformation, on my trauma transformations page there. Um, and uh, and and that's where I put most of that. So those are the best place. That's the best place probably to to, to watch and monitor me. I, uh, I've got some more work to do on other avenues for that, but that's the easiest place to look. I know we didn't get a chance to talk too much about the well variety and stuff, but Hey, maybe that's a part two sometime. I, you betcha. I, I'm more than willing to, to share about it. It's a very powerful culturally focused um, support system for addictions in the native people. Okay. So I think we'll be planning a second episode for that one <laughs> soon. Beautiful. Alrighty. Well, folks, I want to thank you for coming and listening and here with Steve Sawyer, licensed clinical social worker. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist. And stay tuned as we start this, uh, as we're going into this year of 2023. And I hope to have much more for you to be able to hear and listen and learn. So be well, be safe. Ashe. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, For another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.